No, but you know, the fascinating thing now is just to look back, what has happened, gentlemen, that through this conversation, in this conversation, what we made manifest is the most basic thing of reality, interconnectedness. That's what reality is. That's what nature is. That is what we are. And the only thing that happened in this hour, that through this conversation, it became manifest in each of us. We became real. And in that reality, there is this well-being, this happiness. And why the fuck don't we do that continuously? Today's podcast is sponsored by The Good Health Revolution. It's our four-week online course where we partnered with a gastroenterologist and a dietitian and created a course to heal your gut. Your gut is where 70% of your immune system cells are. It directly impacts your moods, your emotions, and even the foods you crave. Our course, a four-week course to hold your hand. And did you know there's research that anyone who has IBS or IBD research in the States said that they would give up 10 years of their life expectancy to have an instant cure? Our Good Health Revolution course, we've had over 10,000 people through it. It really does work. And you get to eat delicious food to help heal your gut. Yeah, so check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes. If you go to thehappypair.e forward slash goodhealthrevolution, you'll find it there. Welcome to the Happy Pair podcast, where Dave and Steve, identical twins, known as the Happy Pair, who started the Happy Pair as a vegetable shop in 2004. And really, this podcast is all about health, happiness, wellness, meaning, and finding purpose within this thing called life, which we all live. You might wonder, who are you guys and why should I listen to you guys? We're identical twins who started the happy pair to create a happier, healthier world and build community. We've been eating a plant-based diet for 20 years. We've explored all sorts of weird, wacky things ourselves in search of joy. This podcast, we try to turn rocks, talk to incredible minds, incredible people, people doing wonderful work to try to find out more, to find out where happiness, where health, where community, how we can all live a more joyful life. And today, we literally, we think we found our leader. <laughs> like, and I don't say that lightly. Matthias Schutten is today's guest, as you might imagine, uh, from the thumbnail. And really, he's inspired us as much as anyone that we've talked to in the last decade, I'd say. He's just, he moved me deeply. He's moved me so much. So Matthias is 71. He's based in Utrecht. He's a professor of ecology. Um, and he's just someone that is intrinsically knows that he's a part of nature and speaks for nature and speaks for the trees and speaks for the humans and speaks for the cities. But just... I really wanted to give it away, but it's such an important message what he's bringing. He's such an important spokesperson and he does it so elegantly and with a passion that is seldom um, kind of matched, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So he's a professor emeritus at a university in, in Holland. He's also professor at universities in two universities in Ireland and UCC and UCG. And he's uh, he just is a... He's a very well, like he's very into Eastern philosophy and world rel comparative religions. He's a so meditation he's, he's an teacher. extremely interesting man. And today's conversation was really about nature and philosophy and life and how we how we can turn the tide on life and within our own personal lives. It was honestly, I don't say this lightly. It's been one of the most moving conversations I've had of recently, and I really hope you get as much out of it as we do. Without further ado, we give you the wonderful Professor Matthias Schutten. So maybe let's jump right in because like we have such reverence for nature. And I know I know I, I was listening to you and you say that you've you you in one of your lectures, one of your, your college lectures, which you used to do, the first six weeks were spent on one question. The question was, what is nature? And I wonder yes. like, like what was the like obviously 
it's such a complex question and there's so many facets to it and your experience are so vast. But how would you answer that question? Yes. Today, really, today. (laughs) (laughs) You see, um, the problem is, of course, we use the word nature very easily. But when you start to ask people, and what do you mean when you use the word nature, then it becomes complex. Um, it's just like like a word like love, hmm? easily used. When we try to analyze what we really mean, it becomes rather complicated. The same with the word nature. And you know, there's two extremes. For some people, nature is that domain that has not been impacted upon by humans. That what is there outside our influence. And that's basically the class, classical Western approach because uh, the word nature crom- comes from the Latin natura. And that meant that which develops itself on its own, outside human impact. And that was then opposed to the concept cultura or culture. So for most Westerners, nature is that what is outside our world. But then we have immediately a problem. What about us? Are we humans nature? I mean, we are, uh, we are also an animal. So, and then people, people, usually people say, oh yeah, 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 yeah. We, we of course are also nature. And then I always ask the question, okay, but then, if an anthill is nature, is a city then nature too? Ants, humans, animals, all nature. And then people start to become very confused. Oh no, no, a city is not nature. You get where I'm getting at? You see what we've done in the West since basically classical times, we've separated nature and culture. And at first view, that is very easy. Uh, we have human culture and nature is out there. But when you then ask, start to ask questions about, okay, where is the dividing line? Where does nature end and culture begin? Another way around. And suddenly it's not clear anymore. Now, other cultures have a much more simple answer. They say, nature is everything. In China, in classical times, the characters that, that you use to basically um, describe nature in a Western, uh, let's say, use of the word, the three characters, heaven, human, earth. And the answer is very, very simple, everything. So what I'm trying to say, that your definition of nature is contextual. It depends very much on where you are in the world, what culture you are in, etc., etc., etc. So if you ask me, what do you uh, see as nature? I would see, say, um, in a way, I feel nature is everything, and we are part of nature. And um, as 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 one 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 fascinating philosopher said in the last century, we humans are not a phenomenon in this world. We humans are a phenomenon of this world. And that means that I see myself as a phenomenon of nature. I love Does that. that make any sense? Totally. Yeah. It's, it's like a paradigm shift. It's instead of seeing, like, I, I think I was looking at 
one of maybe it's the Oxford Dictionary or one of them where they kind of nature is all that happens outside a human. Whereas yeah, what what you're talking and which I really admire is that we're all intrinsically linked. There's no separation. Absolutely. We are nature. Nature is us. It's all one side of the same coin or it's all yeah. intrinsically and then, then even even in that <clears throat> definition so okay so we are part of nature where does like and this is bringing in your spiritual context and Buddhism and spiritual philosophy <laughs> my question is more about like so if we are part of nature and I see like for example in, in when tsunamis are coming usually the yeah. animals just move up the mountains they move up exactly. the hills and, and yeah. it's not because they know the wave is coming it's just they just move up the mountain I don't know why they they're part of nature them. whereas yeah. us humans I think we've lost that sense of connection to nature Absolutely. and I wonder where just, does the human know. ego start and where does the human like the nature part of human maybe it's the <laughs> intuition like where where is the separation because like I believe you we are part of nature but when I walk around you know in most of modern societies it doesn't feel like we're natural nature like we we can't sit still like I look at my cats and they can just sit there looking out the window all day. And I can't sit still for 20 minutes reading a book. You know, it's like yeah. it just our nature has changed. And my question is a bit of a rant, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. <laughs> well, no, but, but you used an interesting word, the word ego. Yeah. And as soon as the ego enters the stage, separation starts. Because the ego can only maintain itself by separating itself from the environment. It's my ego. And there's something out there that's different. You get my drift. So the moment uh, the ego starts to speak, there is separation, divided. divided. We are becoming divided from the world around us. Our ego has thought itself separate from the rest of the world. There, there's, a, there's a Vietnamese philosopher, Thich Nhat Hanh, he died last year, who whom I greatly admired. And then in one of his books, when you open it up, he was a Buddhist philosopher. The first page reads as follows. When you are a poet, you see a cloud floating in this sheet of paper. Because without clouds, there's no rain. Without rain, trees cannot grow, and we do not have paper. Looking deeper, you see sunshine in this sheet of paper. Without sunshine, trees will not grow. We have no paper. Looking deeper still, you see a woodcutter in this sheet of paper. The woodcutter cut a tree, brought it to the factory, where the tree became paper. Looking deeper still, you see the woodcutter's parents. They're also in this paper. Otherwise, there would have been no woodcutter. Looking deeper still, you see grain. Grain that became the daily bread of the woodcutter, cut a tree, brought it to the factory, where it became paper. And ultimately, you now also see yourself in this sheet of paper. The paper has become part of your consciousness, so you are also in and with this paper. And then he says, in short, there's nothing I can point at that's not here and now, in and with this sheet of paper. Time, space, rain, sunshine, a woodcutter, a tree. And then he says, therefore, I suggest another, he says, I suggest that we replace the verb to be. Because the verb to be 
suggests and implies that things and beings can exist independent of the world around. I am. You too are. Hmm? But, says Tignatam, nothing and no one exists independent of the world. So it suggests a new verb to interbe. I interam, you interar, and this house interis. And that's a fascinating philosophy, which, by the way, is not just a philosophy. Science proves this. We know this from ecology. We know this from physics. We know this um, in sociology. We know this in psychology. None, none of us exists independent of the world around us. Only our, our conceptualization and our images and ideas and thoughts about our ego separate us. I have an ego separate from the rain and the sunshine and, and nature and the other. That's just a thought, a wrong image of reality that causes a lot of pain and suffering. Because you always have to maintain this ego and this, this idea of an independent self that you need to continue and protect and whatever, whatever. Whereas in reality it doesn't exist. I love that. I interam and we inter are. Yes. Like like it's And you too should know that very well. Well we've we, we we've intrinsically known this since the day we were, you know, one egg that split into two. Exactly. To the day that there was reference that we, we were aware. Um that, that that's that's just such an, an incredible way of thinking. For, for example, mom used to always tell a story that she'd put us up to, up in separate cots and she'd close the door and she'd leave. Yeah. She'd go downstairs and she'd come back up an hour later and as little, you know, babies, we managed to move our two cots together, climb up, <laughs> so that we were both in the same Excuse cot me. on top of each other. And that now was... Listen, if we would do this with every other living being in this world, we wouldn't have all the crises that we're in. The great crises of this time, of this, of this, this day and age, are... Loss of biodiversity, climate crisis, environmental crisis, pandemics. And what are they caused by? By our idea, our idea that we as human individuals, but also as a species, are independent of the world that we're in. Totally. Where, where we have started to use the world as a storehouse of resources and space to be colonized, instead of being like you two, moving the cots together. If he would do that, the world would be a different place. Mm, wow. I, I love your, you, you, I've heard you use the expression, it's like we're orphaning ourselves from nature. Yes. And that's part Absolutely. of the reason that we're so isolated and often so lonely and so many Absolutely. of us can struggle with mental health is that we have this, we're disconnected, we're separate, yeah. we yeah. see ourselves as as orphans from nature, whereas yeah. we part, part of the solution is if we can reconnect, we can I, I, I was just reading a lovely article there um, and I, you were talking about the power of water and I, I read that you you had an exercise, you were teaching a business class and you got people to sit for 15 minutes a day and to look at something that was from the natural world. And I think yeah, in yeah, this particular yeah, example, not man-made, not man-made yeah. the, a businessman had to go look at a tree for 15 yeah. minutes every day and he thought it was stupid and he wasn't into it. But uh, he sat there for a week, looked at the tree for 15 minutes and by the end of the week, he couldn't help but not wave at the tree every time yeah. he walked past, because suddenly his relationship with the tree had changed. Yes, and that had that had implications because 
he was uh, he was the CEO of a big, big, big company, which used lots of wood. And he suddenly asked himself, um, where does the wood that we use come from? And then he found it was not certified. That means it was not sustainably grown. And then he changed his complete wood timber import, just as a result of looking at a tree without ideas, conceptions, etc., etc., for 15 minutes a day. And the wonderful thing is, um, when let's 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 uh, start from another angle. There's a, a philosopher that I greatly admire, Martin Buber, a Jewish philosopher who lived in the first half of the last century. And he was the philosopher of reciprocity. Reciprocity between God and humanity, between humans and between human and nature. And in one of his books, or maybe his famous book, which is I and Thou, he writes on the first page, I look at a tree and I can see it as a as a form, uh, a high stem that is that is um, lit up by, by the sun. I can see the leaves green with silver in between. I can look at it as a specimen, as a species. I can look at it as a process, a process of of um, uh, nutrients moving up, etc., etc. I can look at it as um, a representation, a representation of laws of nature. I can look at it in just a mathematical formula. In all that, it remains my object. But, he says, it can also happen out of will and out of grace that I suddenly enter into a relationship with this tree. And then it no longer is an it. It becomes a Thou. That happened to this businessman. And the wonderful thing is that when we can enter this sort of relationship with the world around us, we feel much better. And that's not just a nice idea that I have. It has been proven. Um, Dada Lama has always been very interested in Western technology. And he started experiments in California where people meditators were put into uh, a clinic where all kinds of electrodes were put in their, on their skull to measure what happened when they were meditating. And most meditators who meditated on, on meditation of calm and peace, you immediately saw that in the brainwaves. But there was also a meditator, who was a close friend of, of um, the Dalai Lama, who had been meditating half of his life on what in Buddhism is called metta. And meta means loving kindness towards the world, loving kindness towards all beings. Now this person, Mathieu Ricard, started his meditation and within one minute, that part of the brain where that basically represents our sense of happiness, our sense of well-being, lit up like lightning. And then Allah Lama said, yeah, that's what the Buddha always said, connect to the world, loving kindness to the world around you is not only good for the other, it, also, it is also very good for yourself because you feel better. And this businessman who looked at that tree for a, a, a few weeks, every 15 minutes a day, he said, 
after that exercise, I felt happier in this world, more connected, less orphaned, you could say. Wow. I love everything you're saying. I really, <laughs> I really, really appreciate it. And I'd love to talk more about the interconnected aspect, like yeah. because because nowadays, like so many of us spend, you know, we spend more time sitting indoors than we do yeah, sleeping, yeah. not even yeah. to mind outside, like yeah. a lot of people spend less time outside than people that are in prisons. You know, people in Absolutely. prisons have a mandatory one hour a day outdoors. I don't think a lot of people don't spend an hour outside in nature, outside under the under the no, sky. No, no. And I think I think when you often you when you used to give your talks, you'd often ask, "Hands up, how how do you feel about hands up? Who feels optimistic about the future?" Yeah, yeah. And you said yeah. over the last kind of ten, fifteen years, less and less hands were sticking yeah, up. That more yeah, and more people yeah. were feeling kind of sad, worried, anxious, afraid, kind of yes. disenfranchised, disempowered. Yeah. And for anyone listening now who goes, my God, this sounds like I'm going against the political system. I'm going against capitalism. I am insignificant. I wonder yes. if you could talk about the interconnectedness of life. <laughs> um, where do we start? <laughs> I know, it's a, bit, it's a bit like asking me about nature or love again, like interconnectedness. It's just another no. word for the same concept. You see, the, 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 the reality is, of course, that more and more, and particularly young people, become rather depressed about, about their lives and their future. I don't know whether you know, but in most um, courses of psychiatry or psychology, there are now courses in how to deal with um, climate depression. More and more young people get depressed, seriously depressed, because they don't think they have a future anymore. I was teaching a class, maybe maybe a month ago here in Utrecht University, 200 students from all kinds of, 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 of um, uh, streams. And at the end of the class, I asked them, whom of you is optimistic about um, the question whether we can create a sustainable future for ourselves and the world? None of the students raised their hands. And then I asked, why? In Christ's name, are you sitting here studying environmental science or whatever you're studying? And then one girl raised her hand, and that kept me awake for nights. And she said, you see, I've no doubt that, uh, that the Titanic will, is going to hit the iceberg, but I'm going to try to be the violin player on the Titanic. And in the years that I still have, I want to do the best in the world. This is sad. This means that you've lost faith in the future and also lost faith in the enormous power of each individual to co-create this world. None of us is powerless. You see, when you think about interbeing, that we talked about connectedness, none of us is powerless because we are, each and every one of us is connected to the world, to the world through a myriad of relationships. Every breath we take changes the world, if you get what I'm trying to say. Everything I, I feel that everything we do, everything we say, and even everything we think, go creates the world, because we're connected. I mean, whether you're going to, to, to sleep for the rest of your life, or whether you go to work for a Nobel Prize, in both cases, you change the world. You cannot 
not change the world simply because you exist. And then, of course, many people say, yeah, yeah, but I'm insignificant and I cannot, but I don't really matter. Now, gentlemen, um, I always was deeply interested in philosophy and to being, and I found a fantastic philosophy and wow, 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 wow. And I thought it everywhere. And there was then a moment in my life where I suddenly realized this is the moment where I really start to understand. I was at a conference, maybe, maybe 10 years ago, and two young people walked up to me, a young man and a young woman, a little boy. And they said, may we introduce our son to you? And I said, yeah, of course. And they said, no, this is our Matthias. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm also called Matthias. Nice name, isn't it? And they said, no, no, no. We named him after you. After which I became very worried because I didn't know these people. And I said, have I met you somewhere before? They said, no, but um, about six years ago, you talked at a conference and there you quoted the Buddha. And the quote you used was, may all beings be happy and secure. Um, this is from one of the Buddha's sermons. May all beings be happy and secure. Whether they're big, medium or small, strong, medium, strong or weak, nearby, far away, seen or not seen, born or yet striving to be born, may all beings be happy and secure. They were in the audience. They just heard three weeks before they were pregnant. They decided not to have the child. They felt too young for parenthood. And two days after this conference, they had an appointment in the clinic. They heard these words, in which was said, may all beings be happy and secure, born or yet striving to be born. At that moment, that looked into each other's eyes and wordlessly decided to let the child be born. Eight months later, a boy was born, and then they called it Matthäus, after the person who quoted the Buddha, because they found Buddha a too big name for a little boy. <laughs> now, the point is, when they told me this, and this was a crucial moment in my life, I realized that the decision to um, quote the Buddha was taken the day before in two seconds. Actually, it was taken in one second, but I need another second to think, can I do this at a scientific conference? <laughs> and then the whole quote lasts nine. Checked it, 14 seconds. Gentlemen, 16 seconds out of my life, and a human being was born that otherwise would not have been born. And I would never have known had they not told me. This is interbeing. This is participation. In everything we do, we co-create the world. And in much bigger ways than we can ever see or ever fathom, because we don't know all our connections with the world. We're so focused on our careers and our ego and our press on the way we constantly touch this world and change it. 16 seconds and a human being was born that otherwise would not have been here. And that convinced me that um, this is, on the one hand, a great responsibility. At the other hand, the greatest happiness that we humans can imagine. We constantly co-create the future, and in much bigger ways than any one of us can see. You remember there was one woman in the 50s in the last century who refused to go and uh, to, uh, refused to keep standing in the bus. She sat down, was put out of the bus, day after day after day. Then she was put in prison. 
And then when she came out, she did the same. And again, in prison, the same. And this one woman, Rosa Parks, through what she did, changed the world. Because that was the beginning of a movement that changed the United States in the attitude to colored people. Each and every one has a power to co-create a sustainable future, a future of well-being. And the great tragedy of this moment is that I see so many, particularly young people, who feel that they've become powerless. So this is my constant message. You're never powerless because you're interar with this world. You are constantly changing the world through your life. So just decide what world you dream of and then live it and it will happen. Oh my God, that is so beautiful. It's, it's so spiritual what you're saying and it's also so practical, so pragmatic. And so simple. Absolutely. So simple. And uh, you say it with such conviction, it's like, of course, of course. I yes, I, I totally not believe this. I know that it is true. Me too. A hundred percent. So in that context, then I, it would it, like, cause it's, it, cause it's so easy that many people can feel disempowered to the capitalism, yeah. to climate yeah. change, these huge big forces, but it's the power of the collective. It's the little, small, little changes that slowly grow momentum. It's the, exactly. the, the drop of sand that slowly, or the, the drop of snow that slowly turns into a snowball, which turns into bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think that's exactly it. You see, when, when I ask my students, why, why are you not optimistic? And immediately they say, yeah, politics, the economic system, financial system, multinationals. And there are various philosophers who say, you shouldn't try to change the system. The economic system is a system that has emerged over two centuries. None of us can change it anymore because we don't even know how it works exactly. No. We're powerless. And when you try as an individual to change the political system or the financial system, yeah, you can just as well bunk your head into a wall. So many modern philosophers say that's not a way. What you should do is become your own system. You, as a person that interests, that participates in this world, you need to decide what you want to be, what force you want to be in this world, Live it. And that starts to resonate through all the interconnected links that there are with the world. And when more and more people start to form their own system, they start to co-resonate and um, make that resonance strong. And we know from sociological research, when 20 to 25% of society have changed in victory, in their way of being in the world and start to co-resonate, we call, we call them scientifically the cultural creatives, then you get a tipping point and the whole society will change very, very rapidly. Now, my optimist message is we are in Western societies more or less at 20% cultural creative. So, a little more resonance of individuals who want to join this collective resonance and the tipping point will be there and will move very rapidly to another world. And then the old institutions that we cannot change anyway, they will 
fall. They become dysfunctional. New systems will be formed. Wow. My mind is off racing trying to imagine what it'd be like. What fun. What I'm just sitting here grinning from ear to ear going, yes, yes. Exactly. I feel like I feel like I'm watching a movie in a bit where it's like, yes. Yeah, I want to run through the fields and skip and jump with glee and go, yes, we've solved it. It's in the yes. bag. It's sorted. We just need to do it, every one of us, on an individual level, and the rest will follow. And you see, again, you can think this is no scientific theory. Gentlemen, I was a hippie. I um, studied um, my, my years of, of coming to age were in the 60s and 70s. And that was, of course, when there was an enormous cultural movement in the West. Started in California, you remember, flower power, etc., etc., moved to Europe, and uh, I was a true hippie. Hair down to my ass, uh, walking with all kinds of jewelry, and uh, as we did in those days. Now, we dreamt another world. There were a few things that we dreamt of. One thing is um, female emancipation. We dreamt of emancipation for the what we now call the LHGTB plus community. We drummed of emancipation of nature, taking nature seriously as a part in our lives, and we worked for that. Now, some things have been extremely successful. Um, women's emancipation has been extremely successful since the 60s and 70s. Emancipation of LHGTB plus has been extremely successful. Nature, not so much. There are reasons for that that I can, we can go into that later. But the world changed dramatically between the 60s and the late 70s through the new age or hippies or whatever you want to call them. And I was one of them. And gentlemen, we were not more than 20% of society. Because I remember very well when I went back to the village where I was born, that everybody frowned upon me because I was the only idiot in the village. <laughs> it was, of course, everywhere in the country were not that numerous. But we caused a societal shift when we reached about 20% of society as cultural creatives. So I absolutely believe that this theory is correct. Your message is beautiful because it like nowadays it's the same message that we've had conversations with people about manifesting, you know, this kind of yeah. concept. And what you're saying is directly in line with that. It's like just like instead of almost like bringing to be despair and, you know, negativity and more of the same, it's like, well, focus on what you want. And as an yes. individual, take responsibility and envision it and go yes. for it. And, and to, to do it in connection. I think that's the key. It's this inter am, yes. inter doing, inter being. And it's kind of like for, for anyone listening, like what are practical things to try to form that connection with nature and to kind of practical methods to remind many people who are have I guess almost trained their mind into feeling so separate and so disconnected yeah. and so removed and so orphaned from the other and nature from being the great a, community yeah, yes yeah, of life it's, there are very simple things that you can do first thing is listen to yourself when you talk about nature I was at a at a very big conference in the Netherlands on sustainability 
700 sustainability thinkers on one of our islands for seven days. And the sentence I heard most in all the seminars was, we should use nature more for carbon sequestration. And then I listened and thought, we should use nature more for carbon sequestration. Yeah, and I just come back from Ireland where I walked, had worked um, with, an, with an old farmer, his land, somewhere in the bird, the lovely farmer, fantastic land, loads of white love because he managed his land in an environmentally friendly way. We were walking and we came to a field and in the middle of the field there were some big rocks and he stopped. I was silent for a minute. And then he just said, don't the rocks display themselves beautifully today? <laughs> we should use nature more for carbon sequestration. Feel the difference. When you listen to how you talk about nature, you immediately become aware of your relationships. I, I advise all people to sit in groups of friends or family together and do a role play. One of them takes the role of a tree, the other of a bird, the other of a fish, the other of water, the other of earth, and the other of human, and start a discourse. We now train students at my university in Wageningen in what we call um, um, wild perspectives, and that's a summer course. At the beginning of the course, each student needs to decide what he or she will be for the week. Maybe water, maybe fire, maybe tree, maybe flower, or butterfly. And then they have for a week, they have to try to live that life. And then at the end, there's a great theater performance where they all go in dialogue. And these students leave that week changed forever. So that's one thing. Listen to how you talk about nature. Role play, where you take nature as a partner with, with whom you have relationships and nature was a thou and not an it. And then mourn. One of the reasons why we don't move ahead in all these crises is because we're not, not, a, we're not able to stand still for a moment and mourn all that we have wrecked. Here in the Netherlands, we have two minutes of silence on the 4th of May to commemorate all the people that fell during the last two wars. Yeah. Why don't we have two minutes a year where we are silent, stand, and commemorate everything we have made extinct through our selfish actions in this world? And unless we accept what we've ruined and accept how destructive we can be, we cannot move ahead constructively. So let's mourn what we've wrecked at the same time. Let's celebrate the beauty of this world. Let's celebrate nature, nature which, which gives us beauty, food, companionship, free, every days of our life. We just take it for granted or don't see it. Let's celebrate. Let's have one weekend in the year where we celebrate nature, that it is there, that it nourishes us, that it is our friend, that it constantly supports us. And then finally, yeah, let's look at something not man-made for five minutes a day. And ladies and gentlemen, if you would do this, we change and unlearn a lot of stupid things in our 
concept of the world within half a year. And then within a year, we have another society. Wow. Here, here. I'm in. 100% in, Matthias. 100% Where in. do we sign up? We're with you. You are our leader. We, we are in, Mr. There leader. is no leadership. There's just interbeing. Yeah, I like yeah, that. Yeah. Like it really is such a, a, a different concept, interbeing, because yes. like it's been so conditioned into us, this individualism yes. and this competition. Competition, yeah. like absolute, it's so baked in. And even as identical twins, you know, we've been bred on competition for yeah. for people's attention and our mother's attention and everything. And this idea of interbeing, it's, it suddenly but, but gives it's, a greater concept of security. Justina, my wife, has always been on about, she's a psychologist and she'll always say, it's not about like you, it's about who you're talking to and what you bring yeah. out in each other. That's what yeah. it is. That's connection. That's the That's point. Connection. That's you know, interbeing. And the point is, nature shows us this every day. The interesting thing is, when I when I was a student of ecology, um, I had to do experiments with plants and animals on competition. And, and a woodland was described, a woodland ecosystem, as a collection of trees in competition. Now, it's quite interesting, this idea of competition. You know where it basically comes from. It comes from misinterpretation of Darwin's evolution theory. Darwin wrote his book, The Origin of Species, and he sh sh um, discussed the principle of natural selection. What he basically discussed is that when conditions change, those plants and animals that are best adapted to change will survive in the evolutionary process. That's the thing he described. But that was hijacked 30 years after he wrote a book by an ecologist, biologist, anthropologist, and an editor of The Economist, Herbert Spencer. And he was looking for a scientific basis for the free market theory. The idea that in the free market, through competition, the best will survive and the rest will be weeded out. And he thought to find that in Darwin's theory. And he phrased the famous phrase, survival of the fittest, never said by Darwin. Darwin could have said that if we interpret correctly as the fittest is the, the one that's best adapted. But Spencer interpreted as the most competitive. And there comes this whole idea of competition and competitiveness into our world as a means for individual collective progress. And that even entered by a logical interpretation of Darwin's evolution theory. I had to do experiments with plants and animals to see which one was the most competitive. Gens, our worldview is changing. And science is also changing. Modern evolution biology interprets and sees Darwin's theory in a completely different light. What we now know and understand is that the fittest, those species that will survive changes, changing circumstances, are the most connected species. The species that are most in entropy, those species that build the most relationships, those species that cooperate. The more cooperative you are in nature, the better 
you will survive stress, difficult circumstances, and change. So nature shows us that for well-being, we need to be connected. Have you heard of the, the Wood Wide Web? The Wood Wide Web. The Wood Wide Web. That- New concept in science. We, I learned that the forest is a collection of competitive species. No, gentlemen, underground, all these trees are connected to through fungal threads, enormous webs of fungi that connect to the trees and that communicate with the trees. In the sense, when there's something happening which would threaten the trees, trees get that information from the fungi. The fungi help the trees in survival, etc., etc. And suddenly, we now see that the woodland is basically a big organism of loads of individual uh, species interacting, cooperating, in such a sense that the whole system can resist all kinds of external threats. So cooperation, interbeing, being together is the way ahead. And I find it fantastic that I now live in a day and age that we in science, but also more and more in our societal terms, start to see this. That's such a wonderful concept, that idea of, like, it it fundamentally changes the paradigm on how we live as a society because in capitalism it's yeah. all about competition it's all about and when doing you t- when you talk about cooperation being the fundamental this, the ultimate survive like the strongest are the ones that cooperate best and are the most interdependent that yes. fundamentally changes one's perspective because it's like well how can I help others how can I be a connector how can I be yes. a bridge that aids yeah. and expands and unites yes. and br- unifies yeah. rather than how can I get more stuff for myself? Because that's the current paradox. Exactly. How do I get more stuff for myself? And that means how I'm going to have less stuff more? for you. Yeah, how can I give more? How can I be more useful? Like it really yeah. changes things. And, and ultimately, it's probably the most selfish thing we can do as individuals because a bit like that meditator who was sending loving kindness out, it lit up that kind of happiness part yes. of our brain. When we give and we're interconnected and a, a deep sense of part of systems we're going to feel better, like it will heal ourselves yes, and we will not absolutely. feel orphans. Even you look yeah. at the Harvard Longitudinal Study where they kind of measured... Um, it's the adult, Harvard Adult Development Study. Yeah, yeah, which was done over 84 years and they had three generations of, of people and they tracked them every year to, to find out what, what ultimately leads to a good life. And they had yeah. people that were millionaires and people that were yeah. billionaires and people that were poor and every, everything in between, mostly men, because it started yeah. in 1932. But um, they yeah. found that the single biggest thing for well-being is relationships, is the quality of your relationships dictates the quality of your life. And I guess that comes back to exactly what you're saying, is interconnectedness is the the ultimate thread of the the most well-adapted or the healthiest. No, I think, yeah, this D formula for well-being on the individual level, but also on the collective level. And it is, of course, extremely sad that what we've done with this world and our world view that we, on one hand, have brought in the idea of progress, and not progress in the sense of well-being. See, progress has been an, a sort of idea in our Western society for, for hundreds of years. Originally, it was progress in the sense of um, bringing um, 
let's say, the divine world on this earth. Huh? The, the, the Christianity of progress was that the world should become more and more the paradise that God had intended. Beautiful religious idea of progress. In the Enlightenment period, 17th and 18th century, the idea, because that of course is when, when religion lost it, part of its foothold, the idea of progress became progress in the sense of education. Educate the world. Bring the world uh, with more reason and less superstition. That was the idea of progress, education. And in the 19th century, it was all brought down to one flat level, material progress. And we now, our whole ideology is we need to grow every year in materiality. That gives us happiness. And that's an enormous, narrow idea of uh, what well-being constitutes. And this is so fed into our system. We hear, we have a, a government here in, in the Netherlands that makes one mistake after the other. And let me not get into it. But that is sort of re-elected every four years because it causes our brutal, what is it called, gross national product to grow. And that idea that it makes us more prosperous, we re-elected and it can get away with all kinds of things. And the nation becomes more and more unhappy, unhappy on a deep level, but we grow materialistically. We have narrowed the sense of human well-being to just material things. And there we become extremely lonely. We become um, spiritually impoverished. We exhaust this world and ultimately because crisis after crisis and our idea of progress needs to change there is one nation in the world who has understood this perfectly it's the kingdom, kingdom of Bhutan there is just gross national happiness measured every year that is material improvement but also education health sense of well-being and not only for humans, but for all inhabitants of Bhutan. Also the tiger, and also the trees, and also the water. That is true measurement of well-being. I, I absolutely adore that. We tried to go to Bhutan a number well, of we, times. We've dreamed, we've, we've dreamed fantasized about, about going filming there and understanding it and filming documentaries yeah. and things, but it hasn't happened yet. But we will envisage it and it will happen. It will be. Okay. Absolutely. Exactly. But you're saying we know what's going to happen. Um, so one question I'd love to talk to you about. Okay. And this comes back to like, it's very philosophical, exactly in, on the same context of what we've been talking about. So nature has a certain pace and a certain rhythm to it. Yeah. There's a certain rhythm in nature. Like I find it yes. ourselves. I'm in the town. Town is busy. Cars are going this way and that yeah. way. Yeah. And it tends to create a slight stress in myself. You know, I feel stressed. Yes. But yet we have a farm. I go up to the farm. I get out of the car door and I stand out in the car and the birds are chirping and yeah. suddenly suddenly I feel like all the cortisol on my body just goes Oom. and yes. I suddenly I suddenly feel relaxed and I feel like I take a deep breath and it feels yeah. like oh my god nature is such a yeah. different rhythm to our societies yeah. and how we are and how we how we live yeah. our lives and my question, I don't really have a specific question about it, but I just wonder how does this relate to, so our vision, like, you know, you've created this wonderful narrative of we need to have a vision of the future and go forward and each of us can have our own role to play in catalog, yeah. co-creating this new world. 
And I just wondered, yes. how does this factor into our societies? This That nature has this, as we've kind of discussed, it's so intertwined. We are so intertwined with it. I, I challenge you yeah. there. You're talking about nature as though it's separate from you. The <laughs> exactly. very fundamental paradigm of that phrase you just said well, is that well nature said. is not you. You are nature too. So it's like, it, it's almost like how we can define ourselves that we're a part of nature. And as each one yeah, of us starts to do it, our cities and our towns start to have that same pace. Well, maybe it starts with each of us as yeah, individuals that's, that's in our point. own lives, you know, rather than our towns. Because right, let's, can... get, let's get Matthias anyway. We, we can keep rambling around it, but I'd love to hear your thoughts no, on this, Matthias. And it's very interesting what you're saying and, and your comment is spot on. We I'm are right, nature. Wrong, Dave. <laughs> no, one all. We are interconnected, We Stephen. are nature, but we don't see it anymore and we don't feel it anymore. And that's exactly where the problem is. You know, um, in Taoism, and also, by the way, in Buddhism and also in Hinduism, in great Asian civilizations, but also in early civilizations in, in Europe and, uh, and in the rest of the world, what was very important for humans to do, and all great philosophers blamed, is to take time to contemplate, to take time to be still in this world and experience yourself in this world and do that in a non-human mate environment. There was a great Chinese philosopher who said that each Chinese should go up to a mountain every seven years, stay there for a month, come down to remain healthy. The Buddha found his enlightenment in nature, etc., etc. It is, I think, constantly necessary that we take the time and the quiet and the stillness to contemplate and to experience our relationship with the world, to reconnect, to recreate ourselves in this world, to find that connection with a great family of life. Because our society has done two things in the meantime since the early civilizations. On the one hand, they find this whole idea of material progress that we're constantly running after. And it has taken away our time. We constantly are moving to the next thing we need to do. You know that every civilization in this world had a repeated ritual of stillness and contemplation. Whether that is the manas or any other ritual in any civilization that was repeated to celebrate the passing of the seasons, to celebrate um, the coming, the, the, the growing of crops, to celebrate the coming of the rains in the Muslim period in India or the Catholic Mahas, or, the, or the, 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 the services in the mosque, or whatever. These are moments of stopping the hectic world, going inside, be still, contemplate, and reconnect, and recreate yourself. We've abolished this, because time is money. So modern people run from one enterprise to the other, in the continuous idea that something needs to be achieved, gained, created in competition with all the others, and we never 
can experience anymore easily, but you experience when you land on your farm. That's the moment where you disconnect with this rat race, this idea of programs, and land in the, your true relationships, your true being. We need to reinstate as quickly as possible rituals of stillness and contemplation in individual and collective ways. Otherwise, we become raving in mind. <laughs> so true. It's so true. And what do, does this look like? You know, I guess it can look like many things for many people. Some people might be into meditation. Other people yes. might be sitting, looking at a stream, sipping a cup of coffee. Someone yeah. else might be going yeah. for a walk. Someone else might be yeah. hiking up a mountain. Absolutely. It doesn't matter. I train in the Netherlands. I give training courses for companies in what we call the inner side of sustainability. And that's not about innovation, et cetera, et cetera. It's about our our basic attitude to the world and what we're talking about, our relationship to the world. And I give the CEOs uh, exactly what I'm saying to you now. I always say you cannot move to a more sustainable world and a more sustainable company if you don't take rituals of contemplation. You need to recreate yourself constantly particularly when you're enormous pressures as a CEO. And then we move through loads of exercises. I have an exercise where they have to listen to, to Gregorian chant for half an hour. Now, for 20% that's great. They want to be doing that for the rest of their lives. Other, we practice breathing meditations or, or experience of nature or whatever. They get a whole day of different methods of what Latin, Latin is called contemplare contemplate and and reconnect and they choose for themselves what the best method is and then use it and you see them change it's brilliant because unless we change inside the outside is never exactly. change and, yeah. and it's kind of a yeah. reminder about the importance of the stillness to remove from being a human doing to being a yes. human being and to actually stop Stop. Well, because because there's there's so much inertia in modern life. Like most of yeah. us are moving, as you said, we're human doings rather than human beings, and Absolutely. we're so busy. Pay, you know, we're so busy on the wheel that there's very little time to step off and go. Oh well, yeah. maybe if I check tighten the nuts of my wheel slightly, maybe it'll run a lot smoother. Exactly. I don't need to spend as much time on it or whatever it might be. You know. Yeah. I have one kind of final slight little uh, deviation I'd love to entertain uh, if you'd be up for it. You mentioned the word superstition and it kind of made me go, oh, this is kind of an interesting one. You know, nowadays we live in this very rational scientific world. and <laughs> yeah. e Even like I compare English to Irish. English is quite a, a measured language. It's very calculated, yes. very quantified, yes. very rational. I look at Irish, which we've been kind of back, we learned to grow up, but in recent years we're back studying it. And I really appreciate like yeah. it's three times older than English and it's much more, gives a natural space yes. for the kind of supernatural, for the superstitious, for the, for, for, for the world that is beyond that we can touch and measure and quantify. And I just wonder as you kind of delve or have explored more of ecology and nature and the natural world than we have, where does superstition or these kind of, other beyond realms. I think what, there's what's magic. The I guess there's, there's like, you know, that idea of like, we all have wonder. We all, you know, most of us want to cultivate this idea of wonder within yes. nature, but there is beyond ourselves. Okay. There's 
there's yeah I don't know exactly you can get the sentiment of what we're saying without us say, I exactly know. get the sentiment how much more time do we have <laughs> sure, whatever this is I'm having a ball I'm enjoying this as much as anything so okay then I'll uh, then I'll give you a little a little a little insight into uh, the work by uh, by a Flemish philosopher whom I greatly admired and that answers your question his name is was Ulrich Liebrecht. He died a few years ago. And he was an interesting man. He loved life and he loved his wine and he loved the song and he loved company. He was also a great philosopher. And he started his life as a sinologist. He studied the Chinese literature and culture and languages. And then he suddenly realized, if I want to understand Chinese philosophy, I should also study other Asian philosophies, which he did. And then he decided, and maybe I should also re-study Western philosophy. And he did, from pre-Socratian to post-humanist, and then he decided only in Africa and also philosophies and the Aboriginal um, people in Australia as well, so he studied those philosophies. And then he studied all philosophies of the world, and he decided, now I'm going to write a little book on comparative philosophy. That has appeared seven volumes, but what he does, does in his work, and that's brilliant, and that answers your question about superstition. He said, but also be philosophy is about making sense of the world. Philosophy is about the question, who am I? What is the world? How can I know the world? How do I relate to the world? And he says, when you look at how all philosophies of this world have approached this question, you find two paradigms, very important paradigms. And one paradigm is the paradigm of um, separating and labeling. And we all learned this when we were a baby on the arm of our mother. At a certain moment, mommy will say to us, that's daddy, or that's your other mommy, and this is mommy, and that is you. What you learn at that moment is use your senses and through your sensory perception, separate Presences from each other. Mommy looks different from daddy, smells different, sounds different, etc., etc. And then you give a name. Mommy, hmm? daddy, I. And that goes on. Street, car, butterfly, flower. That's the way we discover the world. And make sense of it by separating through sensory perception and labeling. Then, of course, you can ask a deeper philosophical question. How do these entities that you've separated connect? And when you use the same paradigm, sensory perception and, um, and um, labeling, you immediately come in the system of hierarchies, low to high, primitive to, to developed, etc., etc. Always building hierarchies, systematics. That already happened in classical Western society with Aristotle, who divided the world into minerals, lower plants, higher plants, lower animals, higher animals, humans. That's what we do. That's how they relate and connect in the paradigm. Then, and what you also do with that paradigm, you, in terms of relationships, you look at causalities. When this happens, that's that happens. You can you can observe that scientifically and describe it. Great. And then you have one definite philosophical question, which is how do all these entities that you have separated and all the relations. What is of all these entities and the relations, the deepest essence, deepest philosophical question. 
Yeah, that this program, the answer is E is MC squared. The formula by which Albert Einstein connected matter and energy. Great! World is understood, described, and we know it all. But the way it is, is an other paradigm. And um, when I explain this to my students, I always ask them, ladies and gentlemen, whom of you is now deeply in love with another person? And always some people raised their hands, much less than I would have thought, but anyway, some raised their hands, because I thought that everyone in this world must be continuously in love, but apparently not the case. And then I asked them, describe me your beloved. And if that person would use the first paradigm, the person would say, my beloved is of the male or female sex, is uh, one meter and 72 centimeters, weighs six, 69 kilograms, heartbeat and rest uh, 69, blood pressure 110 over 90, etc., etc., etc. That's paradigm one. And then I always say, listen, if you would do this, I can assure you, you're not in love anymore. When you're truly in love, you will use a phrase like, um, um, when my beloved smiles, the sun rises. Now in paradigm one, this is absolute nonsense. This is superstition. This exactly now is the idea that the, your, your, your beloved smiles and the sun rises are connected. That's superstition. And things in your life are related to great other things that you cannot scientifically prove. All superstition. That there must be a God. All superstition. We cannot prove that in paradigm one. But when you love, this makes sense. This makes complete sense. When your beloved smiles, the sun rises. What is described here is not the reality that we can describe scientifically. This is the reality of experience of what the great philosopher Heidegger called Dasein, of being in the world. Being in the world in meaningful and a myriad of relationships. You cannot describe those scientifically in causality. You can only describe those in what I would call poetry, metaphor, myth, religious images. Uh, music, dance, um, performance arts, all kinds of arts. And when you call that superstition, then God help us. This is about what you experience meaningfully in your relationship with the world, which cannot be scientifically described. Now that's something that in the age of reason, the 17th century, a Western society wants to get rid of all superstition. The only reality is that reality that reason can describe. And then we uh, took all, we basically disenchanted the world. Because the moment we're enchanted, we, we describe or voice our experienced relationships in all kinds of images and metaphors, which first glance sound very superstitious in the deepest sense have an enormous meaning what an amazing answer i enjoyed that immensely <laughs> you, I, I i love your i love how passionate you are like i'd love to come have lunch with you someday I'd love to come <laughs> so, like i mean it like I, I find you so inspiring i find i've i feel very interconnected with you 
Thank you. And I with you, but you see, um, oh, don't say boys. <laughs> from my age perspective, what I found that being in love with his work, being in love with with the whole community of life, is an enormous joy. You know, I cannot be not passionate because this is where I think the true, the true essence of what we are, of what nature is, is connection, experienced connection, love. I fall in love about 10 times a day, I fall in love with the both of you now. <laughs> <laughs> likewise, back likewise, at you, back and, at you. And isn't that wonderful? That makes the rest of my day different. So I feel that this, this is, in a sense, basically, uh, how would you call it, the key to another future. I always would get every public speech I don't did. And now I can do this because I'm a professor emeritus, so I'm not checked by the university anymore. But at the end of each speech, I now say, listen, there's only one way to go. Fall in love again with yourself, with the people around you, with humanity, and with the great community of life, which we call the earth. And that is the key. What an amazing way to end this conversation that I've enjoyed as much as any. I mean, it's, it's been glorious. Really, as I feel, I feel a warmth inside myself like the sun is rising within myself. And like the rain has fallen and the dew is rising and there's that freshness where you can just breathe <laughs> that incredible air. Oh my God, we're such poets. No, but, <laughs> you know, the fascinating thing now is just to look back, what has happened, gentlemen, that through this conversation, in this conversation, what we made manifest is the most basic thing of reality, interconnectedness. That's what reality is. That's what nature is. That is what we are. And the only thing that happened in this hour, that through this conversation, it became manifest in each of us. We became real. And in that reality, there is this well-being this happiness. Oh, why the fuck don't we do that continuously? <laughs> Amazing. Until we meet again. Yes, until, until we see the next again. time. In person. Thanks a million. Bye. Okay. Bye, 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 bye. 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 We have found our hero. We honestly have. We have found our leader. Oh, that was Matthias Schutten. That was, that Ab was absolutely wonderful and just resonated or resonated resonated in so many different ways and so many levels so i really hope um you really found it phenomenal it was uh, the bit that i found like most beautiful it was like sitting talking philosophy with someone that you greatly admired it was nearly like talking to an oak tree someone that had this wisdom and this wisdom of interconnectedness and the wisdom that we are all nature and that there is no separation. Well, I, I haven't felt that move from a conversation where I genuinely will go have lunch with Matthias. I will look at how to get to Utrecht and uh, I look forward to having lunch with Matthias. I, 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 his philosophy inspired me and moved me deeply and I feel much better for it. So I really, found, I really hope that you listen to the podcast. Just It, it lit a spark in you. And I, and I know for me, it's a wonderful reminder that we are nature like even when you were t like even me who n like intellectually knows that we are nature 
I often say that that like when I go up to the farm, I feel calmer because I'm in nature. Whereas it's like it, it actually realized. Oh yeah. But his answer was so beautiful because it came back to each one of us needs to cultivate space within ourselves on a daily basis, and that was kind of like where I was getting at. If we are nature, how do we become? the rhythm of nature, you know, because we are moving so quick. And that was kind of where I was getting to, but I was finding it difficult to articulate. And he, I think he picked up on it and he talked about the importance of having contemplation in your daily life and having space to be. And space in nature too was part of it too, like in outside of man-made or, hu- or woman-made or female-made. Possibly, or but you being part of nature, having space within yeah, yourself is the same thing. But anyway... Uh, thanks so much for we your attention. We could dissect and divide this conversation. We so will anyways, be. It was incredible. I really hope it lit you up in so many different ways. Matthias, you're an absolute legend. Yeah, only yesterday I recorded a podcast with, I was a, a guest on a friend's podcast and it was all on global warming and I'm naturally a highly optimistic person and he, he was asking me that very question, are you optimistic about the future with global warming? And I was like, I don't think I am. I really don't think I am. And it was so such a great reminder to sit here today and for Matthias to say like so many of us are programmed to feel this sense of despair and he's like we are co-creators in the future we need to envisage what we want and consistently go after it and we have more power than we think as individuals and I thought that was such a great reminder and I hope it inspired you today so um Thanks for listening. We are most grateful for your time and attention because we know you could have listened to so many other things. And if you really did get something out of this, please share it. it it's important that this message gets out that we all realise that, you know, we're all vitally important and that's it's each one of us carrying the weight of these challenges that we can turn them around and create this beautiful world that we all want. Yeah. So thanks, Mel. And wishing you a wonderful day. Thanks, bye. Mel. Bye, 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 bye. bye, 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 bye. bye.